John 15, <clears throat> 1 through 17. Listen to God's word. <clears throat> I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. <clears throat> I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we pray that you would help us to hear your son speak to us today. Every one of us should be desperate for life and desperate to find it only in you. And I pray, Lord, that you would do those two things for us today, that you would make us desperate and that you would drive us to life in you. Help us, as John says, just in three words, to abide in love. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's men said together, amen. <clears throat> when I first became a pastor, we lived in the house the church owned, Presbyterians called it, a manse, others call it parsonage, we lived in the manse. And the church we were in had decided about uh, seven, ten years before that they were going to 
move out of that property, <clears throat> out of the church property, sell everything. And so they just let everything go to pot, let the building run down. They'd let the church house, the, the manse run down. It was a big piece of property and it was just getting overtaken by um, uh, briars and weeds and vines, wild grapevines. And these uh, wild vines would get hold of a, an oak tree or any kind of tree and they would, they would uh, flourish. So my dad uh, would come up occasionally and help me clear out this property, and we we started. We we realized that if we were going if we were going to get control of this of this overgrowth problem, we had to get control of these vines. So we we started finding their sources, and we would cut them. Now <clears throat> they were so big, some of them two to three inches in diameter, that uh, their foliage blended in and made. Uh, whatever tree they were a part of, even if they'd killed the tree, it made it look alive. And when you cut the, the vine, it, it'd look up, there's no difference. For a day, maybe sometimes two days, you'd look up and say, I don't think we did anything. There must be some other source for it. Then the third day, started to droop. Fourth, fifth day, wilt. And then in a few more days, maybe the next month or so, my dad would come back and we could, we could pull those things down. Vine wood is worthless when it's disconnected. The law had a prohibition about using vine wood in the fire for sacrifices. You could use any other kind of wood because it would, it would burn well. It had a density to it. You could use any other wood for construction. It had some other usefulness after it had been disconnected from its roots. But vine wood is worthless in and of itself. The only usefulness for a vine is while it is connected and life is pulsating through it and it is producing foliage or is producing a vegetable or producing a fruit. A vine is worthless when it's disconnected from its life-giving source. A branch of vine is dead without the life. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. <clears throat> he says, unless you, a branch, are connected to my life, you are dead. You are connected, he says. You may be connected to some other vine. You may be connected to something else that claims to be a vine. That was a key point in Israel because Israel was imagined in its artistry as a vine. The vine, the vine of God, Isaiah 30 or Psalm 80 Throughout the Bible, the vine is the symbol of, of Israel. It was on their coinage up into the Maccabean period. They were a vine. They were pulsating with life. But Jesus said, if you're plugged into a vine that is anything other than me, 
If you're, pull, if you're plugged into a vine of a lifestyle, of a worldview, of a religion that is other than me, you are dead. So Jesus makes this very simple point. If you want to live, you must abide in Christ. If you want to live, period. If you want to live metaphorically, if you want to live truly as the human being God has made you to be, if you want to live eternally, you must abide, stay in, stay connected to Jesus Christ. Well, here's how he makes that point. He, he, he hits that, <clears throat> he rings that bell three times in this passage. To, just, just basically saying the same thing. If you want to live, if you want to live fruitfully, if you want to live as a disciple, if you want to live in love, you must abide in me. Well, let's take the verse uh, passage apart and see how he makes those points. In verses one through six, he makes this point. If you want to be fruitful, if you want your life to count for something, to count for something significant, then you must abide in Christ. Well, let's understand the image here. Let's understand the, the, the players, the characters in the analogy. The father, he says, is the vine dresser. He's the master gardener. Jesus is the vine. We've made that point already. <clears throat> and the disciples are, that, and you, that's uh, any follower of Christ, true follower of Christ, they are, we are branches. The father does two things to the vine. He prunes it and he cuts off the dead branches. He prunes. Uh, that is to say, he disciplines his children. The Bible says, Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews and uh, Proverbs chapter 3, the Lord disciplines those he loves, disciples. Not punishing, but rather removing from us that which is not helpful to becoming like Christ. We're united to Christ, but we're in the process of becoming <clears throat> more like him, which means he has to remove all of that, all of those thought patterns, those practices, uh, those values that are not conformed to Christ. He disciplines us, and that discipline can be painful just it is, as it was for us as children, as it is for your children. You know, I used to think that my mother didn't know what she was talking about. She said, uh, she said, believe me, this hurts me more than it does you. I said, well, let's, you know, let's trade places and let's try that out. <clears throat> he never took me up. I never dared say that either. I just thought it. But here's what the father does as he's disciplining us. <clears throat> uh, he, he is the master vine dresser and pruning, we're told in horticulture, um, I'm not a horticulturalist, but this is what I'm told by horticulturalists that they do in pruning. They do, they pinch. They pinch and they're, when they're, especially in viticulture and dealing with vines that are, that are growing for, for uh, grapes and ultimately to produce into wine or something like that. They will pinch some, the thumb and the forefinger to prevent a young shoot from growing too rapidly. They're gonna, they don't pull it off 
but just pinch the end of it so more life will come into it and it'll be more vibrant in the, in the future, grow more strongly. The second thing they do is to top, to remove one or two foot section from the end of a shoot to prevent the whole shoot from being too uh, uh, light and uh, easily damaged by wind. I think they call this in, in trimming trees, lion tailing a tree. My neighbor uh, hired uh, somebody who lion tailed her trees, meaning they, they took all the branches off except for a tuft on the end. It looks real nice for a while, but when we get these winds like we have, there's no cushion for them, and they whip themselves to death. And she had more fallen branches from this live tree than she did from the dead branches. Topping is another form of pruning. Thinning, removal of flowers from some clusters so that uh, the whole branch can bear more weight. And then finally, pruning, which we know is removing those suckers, those things in between that uh, suck the life out of the vine. So just put that all together and think about what the Lord does to us. He pinches, tops, and thins us in order to strengthen us for the storm. He pinches, tops, and thins us. It's painful. Every cut hurts. Those things that he takes away that he doesn't allow for us to experience or he holds us back from or he denies from us, they're painful at the time, but he's doing it in order to strengthen us, not to punish us. And then he prunes us. He takes away those uh, suckers, those things that are draining life from us, that are occupying, they're wasting our time, that are diluting our attention in order that we might bear fruit for his glory. You may be going through some really tough things, asking God, why did you take this from me? Why will you not let me have that? Why will you not answer that prayer? Why am I experiencing this, this mood I'm in or this relational challenge or this deprivation or this job fail? Why? And, and the Lord welcomes those kinds of honest questions and prayers and expressions of disappointment. But you must know from this passage and the whole of, Bi the, whole of the Bible that whatever God does toward you, toward me, as his child is out of love. He's not a punisher. He's a father who disciplines in order to make us stronger and more vibrant in his son's life. Then the second thing, that's, that's all under pruning. The second thing God does, the father does as a vine dresser <clears throat> is our text says he uh, takes away, verse 2, <clears throat> every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. Now, that word translated takes away in verse 2, some of your translations may have, he cuts off, is, is iro, a form of iro, which can mean lift up. So here in this, in this passage, in this part of the passage, this part of the, before we get to verse 6, it seems to me and seems to 
uh, people who are a lot smarter than I am, that, that this is all descriptive of what the Lord does for his children, for those who are united to him. When you come to Christ, when you say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, take my sins from me, forgive me, give me your righteousness, we say in theology, he unites us to his son. He literally, you can't see it, but it's a, it's a literal dynamic, he joins your life to his son's life, body and soul. Not only spiritually, but he unites your body to his. That's how we have the promise of the resurrection. We die, our body is buried, but it is still united to Christ. That's how it can be raised to life in the future. So this is true. You are united to Christ. You are joined to him and can't be unjoined from him. So in these early verses, he's describing that dynamic of being united to Christ. And so he, he works on you. He, 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 he pinches, he tops, he trims, he thins, and he lifts up. I don't think we're to read it here that he cuts you off. That would be contradictory to what you've already studied in John chapter 6. When you're united to Christ, you, you, God doesn't orphan those whom he adopts. So the verb, it seems to me, is he lifts up. He does all of these things to the vine itself, but there are occasions too when he has to lift you up so that you can bear more. You know what happens to a vine when it lies on the ground and it, it's a, a, a branch when it lies on the ground and it touches the ground, it degenerates. Sometimes it has to be lifted up by an artificial means. You need to put a chock of wood underneath it or you need to put a, a brace or you need to to hold it up with, with a, a horticultural vine, a, a wire or something. It needs to be lifted up so that more life can get to it. That may be where you are. You are at the end of your rope. You're helpless. You're depressed. You don't know which way to go. You're aimless. You don't know which, what to do. You're, you're, you're trapped. And I want you to hear from this passage that God doesn't say, what's wrong with you? Grab your bootstraps and get yourself up and moving. But the Father is the Father. And he comes and he says, I'm going to lift you up. Maybe he's going to lift you up like that man who had to be taken to Jesus. And they put four people around his, in his cot and they literally had to lift him up. He could not get to Jesus on his own. They, they picked him up on his cot. They cut a hole in the roof. They lowered him down. That's what the body of Christ is for. It's what we men are not good at, of turning to another and saying, I can't do it. I can't kick this habit. I don't know what to do in my business. I'm going to lose my house. My marriage is falling apart. I'm depressed. My wife wants to leave me. I don't know what to do with my children. I'm sick. We don't like to do those things. But the way we experience life 
he says. It's not only what the Father does to us privately and in our hearts and minds is pinching and pruning and thinning and topping, but also what he does through the body of Christ for us. And to access that, we have to reach out for it and admit to one another, you know what? I'm not as great as you may think I am. And here's what you'll find out. The person next to you will say, we already knew that. Because I'm not as great as I think I am either. And thank you for, thank you for confessing it first because I didn't want to confess it to you. He lifts us up. The Father prunes and he lifts us up. And as a result, uh, he says in verse 3, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, clean is a play on that word that we've just been looking at that refers to pruning. So he's saying, you're, you're, he doesn't change the metaphor here into kind of ceremonial language, you know, that you're ceremonially clean. He's sticking with the, the, the viticulture uh, imagery. You are pruned. You are, you're pruned because of the word I've spoken to you. As you stay in my word, in other words, if you stay under the ministry of the word, as you men are doing, as you do in your local churches, as you're sitting under the preached word regularly, as you read it for yourself, you stay in the word, that's where that pruning, that's where that lifting up can occur from the ministry of the word and from the ministry of those gathered around the word. Abide in me, verse 4. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He's saying, in fact, remember this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Quit trying to live like a vine. You will never be the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Branches only bear fruit as they abide in me. And I'm the one, as the vine dresser, who prunes it and lifts it up. Stick with me. Stick with me in the word. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, you do lots of things. You're very busy. That's our, that's our form of righteousness in our subculture. How you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. That's, a, that's, a, that's our calling card. I'm so busy. That means I'm important. That means I'm accomplishing something. Well, you can be very busy and not be fruitful in an eternally significant way. Apart from me, you can do nothing of significance. If anyone does not abide in me, now here comes the warning. So far, he's been talking about his disciples, those of us who are united to Christ and are living in him, and we're proving it by the way we stay abiding in him. But here's the warning. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
if anyone does not abide in me. Now, what does abide mean? We've been using this word abide a lot. And John uh, wrote another set of uh, books uh, toward the last part of your New Testament. Turn there with me, 1 John chapter 2, to figure out exactly what, what does he mean by abiding. And I promise the next uh, 11 verses will go faster than these. If you're looking at your verse, say, well, we'll be out of here by noon. First John, sorry, they moved it in in this Bible. It's in a different place. Okay, first John chapter two, verse 23. No one who denies the father, the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the father also let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. One more, 3.23. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. John, in other words, uses this word abiding and believing interchangeably. So theologically, we would say, here's how you abide in Christ, by faith. Well, what does faith mean? It means sticking with him, abiding. The proof that you abide in him, that you have faith in him, is that you bear fruit. Every branch that does not bear fruit in me, we could read it earlier, every branch that does not bear fruit in me will, I will lift up. And those that are not abiding me in me, I will throw away, cause them to wither, gather them up, throw them in the fire, and burn them. That's the threat of hell. We can't soft pedal it. You're either abiding in Christ by faith and therefore bearing fruit or... You're not. There's no middle ground. You either are united to Christ or you're not united to Christ. If you're united to Christ, you will bear fruit, you will live in this life and live in the next, or you will continue to degenerate in this life, live for nothing, and die eternally in the next. I just wouldn't be loving to you, brothers, if I didn't warn you of that. Maybe everyone in this room is a Christian. I do pray that. But there are other people here. There might be somebody here who is still thinking that it's up to you to get yourself straightened up and to get through life and, and uh, to, to be good enough to be considered worthy of heaven. There may be somebody listening to me who has that false assurance, and I wouldn't be a preacher of the word if I didn't warn you that if you're not united to Christ in faith, you're going to go to hell. And your life will continue to be worthless for this life and empty and eternally painful in that which is to come. So if you want to live, if you want to live fruitfully, abide in Christ. It starts with, Lord Jesus, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And it never stops with that prayer. Every day, every moment, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee.
Well, second major point that <clears throat> Jesus makes is if you want to be my disciple, if you want to, not just to live and be fruitful, but if you want to be my disciple, you want to be distinguished as a follower of Christ, <clears throat> then you must abide in me. Verse 7, if you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now, uh, later, he says in verse uh, 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In chapter 14, he made a similar promise. If you, want, if you ask anything in my name, it will be granted to you. Whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. What does that mean? You say, well, I've asked God many times in his name to make me a billionaire. And he hasn't answered that question yet. I've asked him many times to fix this ball spot on my head. And he hasn't answered that or more serious things. I've asked it in his name. Why doesn't he answer my prayers? I can't answer that easily except to say what we said earlier, whatever he's not giving you or whatever he is giving you, the ultimate explanation is because he loves you. So what does this mean then that whatever we ask in his name, he gives it to us? He's describing the dynamic of what it looks like to live with, uh, by abiding in his word daily. He's describing the overall pattern of a life that says, I am going to live my life according to what his word directs. Every decision I make, I'm going to ask, what does the Bible say? Every decision I make about my career, about my relationships, about my political views, about my uh, desires for my uh, family, I'm going to ask, what does the Bible say? And the more you ask, what does God's word say? What does God, what does God want? The more your prayers will conform to his desires and your prayers will be answered because you're praying his desires. That's the big idea. Now, that sounds Sunday schoolish until you actually put it to practice. I, the first pastor I ever <clears throat> I worked for was a man who, who uh, uh, he had a lot of faults, but uh, he, the Bible was first in his life. And, and he memorized it. And he, uh, he memorized large portions of the Bible. The Bible he, he bled Bible. And I remember people coming to him and chewing on him or complaining about something or asking for something or demanding something. And his answer would be, and where is that in the Bible? You, you, you would wither. So if you came to him and you had an idea or you wanted to contest something that he was saying, you better have it, your Bible, you better be Bibled up. You, you, can't, you could not come and say, well, you know, I just feel like, or I think, or it seems to me, or don't you know that so-and-so says, you better be Bibled up. 
You better know where that is in the Bible. Think about that. As you go through this day, and we wax wise on many things, granting our opinions, we comment on the news, we comment on a policy, just do a stutter step and say, and where is that in the Bible? And not just a proof text, but the, where in the pattern of Scripture is that idea? And it will change not only the way you go through your daily life, it will change your prayer life. You will find yourself praying not just for what would make you happy and just what would serve your temporary interests, but would advance his kingdom. Well, let me hurry on. If we would love, we must abide in Christ. Just three brief points under this big idea. He says, abide in my love. Well, you must abide in his love, the way he loves you. We are loved by Christ. Look at the way he loves us. He loves us with the Father's love. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share a love for each other that is mutually uh, and and, uh, volitionally submissive. I want what you want. The Father says to the Son. The Son says to the Father. The Spirit says to the Father and the Son. I want what you want. And they bring that, the three persons are one God. That unity and diversity is the love pattern that they bring to us, that God brings to us. I want them, Father, he says in John 17, I want them to love as we love. We're loved with that quality, the same quality of love that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love each other. And he calls us, therefore, friends, not slaves. This was a radical idea in the first century. It was a radical idea that a God would love. No God in any religion on the face of the earth loved people. And here is God who not only loves but he calls us, he befriends, he chooses. That's the way you're loved today. And the way we love him in response is by obeying. But obeying is not legalistic. We don't love by law. We love as he has loved us. He loves us undeservingly. He loves us sacrificially. He loves us selflessly. And he loves us as friends So when you're faced with, am I going to obey here? Am I going to return this harsh word? Am I going to click on this pornography? Am I going to be unfaithful to my wife? Am I going to treat this person in a dishonest way? The question is not between if I obey, God will love me more, and if I don't, he will cut me off. The question is, am I going to be a loyal friend to him? as he has been to me. How can I do this to my friend? As attractive as this, as this temptation is, how can I be this disloyal to the one who has loved me as his friend and made me his, his child? And then finally, it comes out in the way we love each other. If you abide in me, if you know me, you will love one another. 
How has Jesus loved you and me when we were worthy of it? When we showed ourselves loyal enough to deserve it? Then when we were nice and, and God said, I want those nice people in my family. That's when we were yet his enemies. Who are the people who are challenging in your life to love? They can't be any worse than you and I were to the Father. So they're the ones to pursue in love. And he says, by loving the unlikely people, you prove that you're united to me. Are your friendships predictable? As people look at you and the people you hang out with and the people you love and the people you like to, to vacation with and the people you like to have in your home and the people you like to, uh, to uh, play golf with and spend time with, are they predictable? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course they're hanging out with you because they all think alike over there. They all have the same views. They're all nice to each other. <clears throat> they're mutually, they, they're their business partners. Or do people look at your friendships and say, what is happening there? Why are they sitting together? Why, why are they going out to eat together? Why are, they, why are they visiting them in the hospital? That doesn't make any sense. It must be that they're loving as the way they've been loved. Well, <clears throat> let me close this way. I've been reading uh, recently about the revival at Asbury. A brother here on the front row went to Asbury. He experienced it 50 years ago, and he experienced the, the most recent one. That revival uh, spread from Asbury to Samford and Lee University, other places. 200,000 people or so eventually came through the campus of Asbury when God was pouring out a revival in the little chapel there. And I read this, uh, <clears throat> this eyewitness account recently by a former Iraq war medic who was, uh, is a student at Asbury. And he said uh, he noticed something in the eyes of the people, long orderly lines waiting to get into not just the chapel, but they had to open up satellite places where you just went in and prayed and sang and worshiped for days and days and days and days and days. This Iran war medic said <clears throat> he went in, he, he visited five times, and he noticed something. A harrowing look of desperation he said, I, I, I've seen this many times, a harrowing look of desperation on a soldier's face prior to death. He said, I saw a similar look on the faces of those visitors. A harrowing look on the face of those who were facing death. It was a desperate look. Others described the lines. One seminary professor said, those trying to enter Hughes Auditorium. He said it was reminiscent of the soup lines during the Great Depression. What, 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 were, what were they noticing? People who had said, 
I need the life of Jesus. They'd come to the end of themselves. And they said, I need the life of Jesus. I've been trying to live life on my own, to abide in everything else except Christ. Christians and non-Christians. And it really is the way to live. Not in fear, not that harrowing look, but if Christ is not my life, I cannot live. It's something, by the way, brothers, as I look at most of you, my generation and above, it's something we must learn from this next generation. It's hard to hear, but they're sick of our casual Christianity. They're sick of our hypocrisy. A Christianity that doesn't make any difference to the way we think politically or the way we spend our money. And they are what some people have called a corrective generation who don't want more, they want less. Less of the show and more of the reality of what it means to live every day for Christ and for what is eternally significant. And may God bring revival to our church and to our homes and our churches. Transform the way we live, the way we serve our city, the way we serve one another by abiding in Christ, abiding in love, nothing else. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for these men who dedicate their mornings. And as I look around, they dedicate their days and their weekends, many of them, to pursuing Christ. Encourage them in that. And, uh, Lord, we pray that all of us, this moment, would do real heart work and business with you and ask, what have we been living for? What have we been settling for? What, is the, what are the hungers and, the, and the, 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 the desperations of the next generation? What are the things that shouldn't be complained about but rather received as corrections? We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fall with revival fire on us this morning, on all true churches in this city, and get a name for yourself. And would the world look on and say, my, how they love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.